Well, last week we turned in our Bibles to answer the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And this is not some side issue like, yeah, there might be a few Christians that want to get a hold of that, those, those green berets that want to go to the next level. And sometimes that's how it's taught. We are not talking about how do you get the Spirit. The Bible is clear. When you put your trust in Christ, you have the Spirit of the living God living in you. He's a person. So you either have him or you don't. You can't get part of him and you've got him. But the Bible does talk about this other thing called being filled with the Spirit, that some of our friends and other denominations say it has to do with speaking in tongues, and, and only when you speak in tongues, now you're filled with the Spirit, and you've got this second thing. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we went to Ephesians chapter 5 to dig in and get some answers. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And I told you last week we're going to do it some more this week, but I'm going to tell you this week we're going to do some more next week. It's that good, as I've studied this works for me. This was supposed to be one message. This is what Brad Bigney looks like when he spreads it out over three weeks. It still fills up 50 minutes. That was supposed to be one message. So we're going to dig into it again next week. But go there today, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. Ephesians 5, verse 14. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit. And let me just say out loud what some of you might have been thinking already last week. I thought the Holy Spirit was a person. How can you be filled with a person? So already we're bumping into something that's a little hard to get your head and your hands around. If he's not a liquid, and he's not, what would it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And we're talking about being filled with a person. Well, here's what I think. To be filled with a person means to come under the influence of that person. It means you become so aware of how they think and what they want and what they desire and what they're passionate about and what they do that it actually begins to shape how you think and what you do and changes the way you live. That's what it means to be filled with a person. And we're talking about being filled with the Spirit. So you would come under the influence of the Spirit more and more that you start to think like he thinks, want what he wants, do what he does, grieve over what he grieves over, rejoice in what he rejoices in. Now you think about how you see this with teenagers and even young children at times. 
they can become so obsessed with a particular person or celebrity or sports figure that it's all they talk about and think about. And they don't just want to know everything they can about that person. They would actually really like to be that person. And so they start to talk like them and walk like them, live like them, think like them. Because they've come under the influence of that person and it shapes them. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And surely some of you can relate if you think hard enough. Because this is not something we ever completely get over. We just find ways to not let it be so evident. It's not so cool for an an adult to obsess over somebody else. But it still can happen. But as a child, I remember it, 10 years old. This is what jumped to my mind as I thought about this this week studying. At 10 years old, living in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh my goodness, I remember. Now I'm old enough that when I was 10, that was at the height of Beatlemania, even in Chattanooga. I know, it was there. In Chattanooga, Tennessee, height of Beatlemania. Now, I was too young to be taken up with the Beatles themselves, and my dad would never allow that in our home at all. He was like against long hair. He, he hated the whole scene, all of it, really bad. I remember a big fight in our home when I asked to have bangs. I just, I, I had a crew, I look like I do now, but I didn't have to look that, this way, now I do. And I asked permission for bangs. You would have thought I said, can I shoot heroin? I mean, he went nutso, nutso, and said, no boy in our house is going to have bangs. So imagine the Beatles in our home, right? So that ain't going to happen. But I was obsessed with the teenager across the street who was obsessed with the Beatles. Oh, he had Beatles posters in his room. He had peace signs everywhere. He had a string of colored plastic beads that hung in the doorway of his bedroom. And even sometimes there was the sickening sweet smell of incense that had been burning. And oh my goodness, I was just, now now if you're thinking to yourself, what kind of teenager befriends a 10-year-old boy? He didn't. This was all in my own mind, right? We were tight. He just didn't know it. (laughs) Because I was actually friends with the younger brother. He was my playmate and friend. That was why I was in the home. But oh my goodness, every chance I got when I was over there, I would try to stick my head in his doorway and I hoped that he would see me, how cool I was, that I love the Beatles too and I love you. And, uh, you know, it was just like, oh. And, and it was the first time, surely you can relate. I just remember something inside me I'd never felt before, a longing and a burning, like I want his approval desperately and I want to be like him. And so here's how this plays out when I said it changes how you live. I worked for hours. I'm only 10. We didn't have computers back then. So I worked for hours with construction paper and tape and markers to create all kinds of peace signs and rainbows and stuff. And it was tacky. But I had it all strung all over the closet door on my side of the room that I shared with my twin brother. I also took a suede vest that was supposed to be a cowboy vest. And I turned it into a Beatlemania vest with fringes. And I would put that thing on with no shirt and wear it bare chested. Yeah. And and I was skinny as a rail. I mean, with my little 10-year-old ribs showing, 
with this little fringed vest. And then I had a string of colored plastic beads I'd throw around my neck. And another string that I would work to wrap around my head like a headband. And tying a knot with just a little bit hanging back off the back there. But we're not done. I also took a pair of cut-off jean shorts, and this is back in the day when you didn't buy things that already looked cool. No one cut your jeans up for you and beat them with a rock. You had to do that yourself. <laughs> yeah. We also walked to school uphill both ways with barbed wire wrapped around our feet to grip the snow. But I digress. So I made my own jeans, cut-off shorts, and worked hard to get little fringes to dangle down, right? And then... I would painfully, I remember in the summers getting permission to go see if my friend could play. And mom would say, sure. But then I had to go into my bedroom and work for a long time to get dressed a certain way. Because I wasn't dressing for my friend, I was dressing for the older brother. Hoping maybe when I knocked on the door, he would answer. Or maybe just as I went to my friend's room, he would see me, how cool I am. Hey, I got beads tied around my head. And I would make my way across the hot pavement of our neighborhood street painfully because I was committed to doing it barefooted just like the poster I saw in his room of the Beatles walking through that crosswalk how were they barefooted notice me too I'm barefooted fringy things beads super cool you want me as a best friend talk to me hang out with me that's what it means to be filled with a person to come under the influence of a person and we laugh because it is very childish but it's also very real in our lives still to date because here's the deal when you come under the influence of someone in other words when you are beginning to be filled with a person two things start to kick in big time you always want to please that person and you're always listening to that person and adopting their values I want to please them and I listen to what they say and I want to adopt their values so stay with me imagine imagine with me then what it could look like if you got excited about listening to the Holy Spirit and wanting to please the Holy Spirit and coming under the influence of the Spirit so that you started to want what He wants and think what He thinks. Do what He does. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So let me ask you, who do you work hard to please the most? And who do you listen to the most so that when they speak, you adopt the same opinion almost without question. Not because you've thought about it and you think it's right, but because they said it. That's what they think. Filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit so that more and more you're wanting to please Him. What would please Him? What would He do? What would He think? What would He want? What grieves Him? What rejoices Him? And what does He say? What does He say? What does He say? That's what I think. I adopt that value. I adopt that opinion. Filled with the Spirit. And I hope this more and more would be true in your lives. Because folks, we don't want to just be filled with the Spirit so we can say we're a Spirit-filled church. We want to be filled with the Spirit so that we can impact this dark, evil work. Is it dark out there? Yes. 
Is it evil? Did God think we could do this on our own, in our own power, with our own wisdom, with our own insights and our own resources? That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. Word and spirit. Word and spirit. So that we can make an impact on this dark world. So the second question I want to dig into starting today and we'll carry it over tomorrow. Tomorrow. If you'll come back, I'll be here. (laughs) Next week is what would it look like? What would it look like? You say, I want to be filled with the spirit. I want to start listening more, obeying more, pleasing more. So what should I expect would start to happen in my life? Well, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but I want to show you three things that I think will start to happen in your life more and more when you're filled with the Spirit. When that becomes more of a habit and a characteristic that you are filled with the Spirit, I am filled with the Spirit, I am filled with the Spirit. Number one, here's what starts to happen. You will waste far less of your time, money, and energy. When you're filled with the Spirit, you waste far less of your time, money, and energy. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 again. Ephesians 5, 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That word drunk is a word that means soaked, saturated, and dominated by. Soaked, saturated, and dominated by. By And that word dissipation, we touched on it last week. I said it mean, it's a word that means spilled out or wasted. Dissipation. Spilled out or wasted. And that word dissipation is the same Greek word that gets used in Luke chapter 15 talking about the prodigal son who took all that the father had given him and went off and wasted it, squandered it in riotous living. Dissipation. It means that your energies and your resources are used in a way that gets you nowhere. And so it's the height of inefficiency. Drunkenness or abuse of alcohol wastes, spills, and is the height of inefficiency. When you're drunk, your energy and resources are wasted. But to be filled with the Spirit is the exact opposite of all that. So see, Paul's bumping drunkenness up against being filled with the Spirit, not just because of the similarities, and there are. When, alcohol, when you're drunk, alcohol controls you and is a dominant influence and in many ways changes you, does it not? But there are some dissimilarities also. Alcohol causes you to waste and spill and be inefficient. Being filled with the Spirit is the exact opposite of all of that. In fact, that word... Dissipation can also be translated exhausted. Exhausted. So being drunk with wine will exhaust you and wear you out over time. But being filled with the Spirit refreshes you and keeps you going. Now here's the connection I want you to make. Notice in the context here of Ephesians 15... Chapter 5, verse 15 to 17. In the context here, as he's talking about drunkenness versus being filled with the Spirit, in verse 16, Paul says, redeeming the time. To redeem means to buy back, maximize, make the most of. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. When you're filled with the Spirit, you make the most of opportunities. You make, it's not inefficient. It's not waste. It's not spill. And you're not exhausted 
So here's what I want you to think about. With this connection of redeeming the time and being spirit-filled, God won't give you more to do in a day or a week or a month than you can possibly do. Now, he will pull you just outside the borders of your comfort zone. Here's what I know I can do in my own strength. Don't ask me to do more than that. He, 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 he will not let you live there. But there's a difference between being pulled just outside the borders of your, I'm completely comfortable here because I know I can do it. And he says, no, I do this. And exhausted and just living on the ragged edge constantly. So if you have more to do, or you think you do, than you could possibly do, and it causes you to just run ragged and exhausted with little or no joy constantly, it means you're doing a lot of things that God didn't give you to do. You may have decided to take it on for yourself for reasons that probably are not all that godly. Sometimes we're like, look at me, look at me, I'm working my butt off. Why? Because it has to be done my way. That's not godly. I'm afraid God won't work it out the way I think it should work out. That's not godly. I don't think anybody else is, is adequate enough to take care of this. That's not godly. Very often we're exhausted because we just won't trust God to use anybody else or to do it some other way than what we think. Somebody say, ouch. And then we're praying, pray for me, pray for me, I'm just overwhelmed, pray for me that God would give me more grace. Often what God wants you to do is let go of some of the things you've taken on that you think you have to do. He doesn't give you grace to do what he never called you to do. Every need that you see, this might help some of you, does not constitute a calling from God for you to meet it. Did you know that? You say, you're kidding. Every time I saw a need, I thought, well, I'm a believer filled with the Spirit, and I should do something about that. Not always. Now, don't hear me saying, some of you others have a different problem. You're just sitting there. You don't meet any needs. You don't do anything. This message is not for you. Get up. Get going. You're a slug. That's a very short message. I'm talking about believers who have become messiahs. Look over your shoulder. If there's a cape blowing in the wind, you're in trouble. And you're swooping in constantly, swooping, swooping, swooping. Especially with our kids. Can we not be caught up in swooping? Oh my goodness, I've got to swoop and take. <gasps> you may have taken it on. Someone else may have put it on you. But God will not give you more to do than you can possibly do. So when you're filled with the Spirit, and you're controlled by the Spirit, you're more focused, and you're listening. God, should I? Even, even you've heard me talk about the gift of giving. I have the gift of giving. I love, don't email me. Great, here's my need. I love to give, but here's what I do. When something rumbles in my head, I just wait to see if it rumbles some more. I wait to see if he brings that back to my mind. I, I want to listen to the Holy Spirit, not just every time I see a need, I should meet it. I want to meet the needs that God is calling me to meet. I set aside money, especially, to have to just give extra to needs. But then I pray, and I listen, and I wait. You waste far less of your time, money, and energy when you're filled with the Spirit because he will not give you more to do than you can possibly do.
Number two, what else would it look like? What would start to happen in your life when you're more filled with the Spirit consistently? You start to see more of reality, not less. Here's also the opposite of drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. You start to see more of reality, not less. Lost my place. Being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit are unlike each other here. Did you know that alcohol is actually a depressant? Alcohol is not a pick-me-up. Alcohol is a depressant. And some of you, you can look it up. It's a chemical that actually depresses. It's in the category of depressants. So maybe you're thinking then, how, Brad, is it that alcohol makes some people so courageous and outgoing and happy when normally they're not? Well, let me help you here. Here's what's going on. It depresses part of the brain and diminishes your brain function so that a drunk person sees less of reality than they did before. So that liquid courage and happiness is really the result of not seeing everything they should be seeing. And so they're happy. Because at this moment, they don't know what was bothering them. And if you've headed down that path at all or have a loved one that has, you know how fruitless that is because as soon as the alcohol wears off, nothing has changed about what was making you so unhappy and you just have to drink some more. But now you're unhappy about the effects of alcohol and what that's doing to you when you abuse it plus the unhappiness you started with originally and then relationships begin to fall apart and it only gets worse and more complicated but you think you have a short-term help and moment of happiness. Being filled with the Spirit is nothing like that. It does not diminish your awareness and alertness to what's going on. It only increases your alertness and awareness. Alcohol just diminishes your brain function so that you don't have to think about your cancer and you don't have to think about your unemployment and you don't have to think about your bad marriage or whatever it is that is bothering you. But as soon as the alcohol wears off, and it always does... There it all is again, and nothing's changed. Now stay with me. Being filled with the Spirit is the exact opposite of all that. Because right here in our passage, notice, Paul says in verse 15, and we hit it last week, see, see to it then that you walk circumspectly. And I told you that word see is not the usual word that just says look. It's the word blepo that means watchful, ready, Really contemplate so that you have spiritual perception and insights about what's going on. You are actually seeing more and have a perception and an insight about it that you did not have. See. And in verse 17 he says, I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. So being filled with the Spirit is not diminishing and less information and less awareness. You understand more the will of God and what his word says and his purposes and his kingdom. And you're seeing more when you're filled with the Spirit. Not less. Being filled with the Spirit increases your awareness and alertness. And gives you a bigger picture. So that you live in the land of reality, not unreality. Alcohol and drunkenness is just a lie. It's a lie at that moment and it's a loss of reality. Spirit filled is more of reality and 
You could get bummed out, trust me. That's why, think about it, as a Christian sometimes, don't you feel like you carry a weight that was heavier than before you were a Christian? Because before you were a Christian, all you cared about was you. Now you care about other people, you care about this world, you care about how evil things are, it bothers you when you see the news in a way that it didn't even bother you. You could actually feel worse and have sorrows and heartaches and pains you didn't, that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter six, sorrowful, he's describing Christians, yet always rejoicing. When you're filled with the spirit, there is a sorrow because you think like he thinks and this world breaks his heart right now. You see people and you don't get mad at them, you're compassionate and it breaks your heart that's where they are. It breaks your heart it's that dark. It breaks your heart they're that confused because you're getting his heart. There's a sorrow you didn't have before but there's also a joy because if you're seeing everything he wants you to see from his word and by his spirit, you realize I don't have to fix all this and there is a purpose and a kingdom and a throne and he's sovereign and he's in control. But notice once again, you only get that perspective, my friend, if you're soaking and saturated with the Bible. CNN news won't do this for you. You'll just be sorrowful. You gotta have God's word. God's word, more reality, not less. Everything about verses 15 to 17, if you look at it circumspectly, see, understand, redeem, has a sense of awareness, awareness, alertness, awareness. Not diminished. To be filled with the Spirit was never meant to give you some kind of frothy joy that makes you just forget all your troubles. C.S. Lewis for years sadly cared for his brother and let him live with him who was a lifelong alcoholic and died an alcoholic. So C.S. Lewis knew up close what it looks like the abuse of alcohol and the effects on people. And it's interesting to me, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I, quote, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Now be careful. Don't hear what he's not saying. Don't, hear that he, don't think he's saying, oh, you'll be miserable after you're a Christian. Because we know when he came to faith in Christ, he was a professor at Oxford and he fought against Christianity. He resisted as hard as he could. But when he wrote his autobiography about coming to faith in Christ, he titled it, Surprised by anybody? Joy. There's a joy. So what is he saying? You say, Brad, then what is he saying? You don't come to Christianity just because I want to feel comfortable. Please don't. Lewis is saying this, folks. You don't come to Christianity to escape reality. If that's what you're looking for, try Hare Krishna and something else where you sit lotus position and think about the color yellow. Christianity is a thinking religion and it cares about people and we're called to step into darkness. You could feel more troubled than you were before. What is he saying then? You don't come to Christianity to escape from reality or forget about your troubles. Instead, Christianity gives you a heightened sense of the truth of who God is and what he's doing in this dark world and you trust him and realize even though you're little, he's big and he's all over history and you can trust him to have hope and courage to triumph in the face of those troubles. 
But our Savior said, you will have troubles. So turn off the TV with the people with hair swept back and air-conditioned dog houses and fast cars telling you there's a way to not have trouble. Jesus didn't want you to have trouble. The king's kids go first class. No, they don't. The king said the king's kids would have trouble in this life because he did. And he had no place to lay his head. They need to read their Bibles. What he does tell you is you won't go through any trouble alone. He's with you and you have a savior who tasted trouble and death and conquered it and he lives in you. And he'll go with you through that trouble. You see more, not less. So you waste far less of your time, money, and energies because you're listening. You're saying, what Lord, what Lord, what Lord? If everything's going on, where would you use me? And you see more of reality, not less. But let me give you a third characteristic. When you start living filled with the Spirit, more and more God's word will be alive to you, oh my goodness, more than ever before. God's word will come alive to you like never before when you're filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit of God loves to make the word of God shine for you in a way that overcomes your fears, in a way that overcomes your own feelings, in a way that overcomes and settles your anxieties. Yes, we have fears. Yes, we get confused. Yes, we have anxieties. And the Holy Spirit loves to make the word of God, the truth of God, shine into those crevices that, of our hearts of what we're dealing with and settle us and give us hope and give us courage and change our perspective. Very often, he does not change your circumstances at all. But he changes how you see them and how you interpret them. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Don't hear me saying, are there times he's pleased to change our circumstances? Yes. But so often, that's our first choice. Take my boss out. That would solve my anxiety. Yes, it would. But what if he decided to leave you there with the same difficult boss and change you in the midst of that circumstance because a resurrected Jesus Christ Holy Spirit lives in you? You say, I don't want that. Well, that's what he, that's what he most often does. More than removing the boss. Why? Because the end game for God is not our happiness, but our holiness. holiness changing us to make us more like Jesus, his son. Spirit of God loves to take the word of God and make it shine for you. You remember what Jesus said about the spirit? Who more than Jesus should we turn to to say, what is the purpose of the spirit? Why was he sent? Why was he given? Go back with me. We looked at it two weeks ago or three weeks ago, but go back with me to John 16. Let's see what Jesus said. Why would he send the spirit? Why would he give the spirit? John 16, beginning in verse 12. John 16, beginning in verse 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of, what kind of spirit is he? Spirit of, say it again, truth. When he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all, say it again. And we know Jesus also said in John chapter eight, thy word is truth oh lord guess what he's gonna do this when you're filled with the spirit you don't start saying i don't even need to read my bible i'm just being led by the spirit please stop 
I read my Bible and he helps me understand it in a way that I live it out. You don't live led by the Spirit apart from God's Word. You live by the Spirit with God's Word. But don't hear me saying you don't need the Spirit either. So we got some people like, all I have is my Bible, that's all I need. Let's stop talking about this Holy Spirit stuff. That's wrong also. It's Spirit and Word, truth. He's the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, Jesus talking, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of declaration and explanation helping you understand scripture more and helping you see more of Jesus. Helping you understand scripture more and helping you see more of Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit simply picks up where Jesus left off explaining the scriptures to us in a way that should make our heart burn. Remember Luke chapter 24? After the resurrection, I think it's interesting, Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, when you look at Jesus' encounters with his disciples after his crucifixion, because remember, they didn't get it. They didn't understand the resurrection. He tried to tell them, but they didn't get it. And so when he was crucified and he had risen, but they didn't believe it or know it, they were scared. They were confused. They were fearful. And I think it's interesting that without fail, in almost every one of his encounters with his disciples, he would open the scriptures to them. Luke 24 is one of my favorite examples where two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're in despair because they thought he was the Messiah and Jesus comes up on them and they don't recognize him because he's got his glorified body and I love it. He says, hey guys, what are you talking about? Like he didn't know. And they're a little sarcastic back. They're like, what? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? Because everybody was talking about this. Everybody was talking about it. Some said he was the Messiah. Some said, I thought he was the Messiah, but he died. Some said, I think he's a good teacher. He's a prophet. He's... There was confusion and there was nothing more important that was being talked about. And they said, we thought he was the Redeemer that was going to redeem her. We thought he was the Messiah what did he do in that moment? He didn't say, well, hey, watch this. See that fig tree? Boom! Yeah. No. No. He didn't do a miracle. Go to Luke 24. Let me show you what he did. Luke 24. Let me show you what he did that he wants to do for you and for me by his spirit. Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 25. Then... He said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Now what that is shorthand for the entire Bible. All they had was the Old Testament. And when they said Moses, they meant the first five books because he wrote them. And when they said the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. Get this, Jesus did an Old Testament Bible study with them that would blow your mind and went to the scriptures and showed them Jesus in the Old 
Testament. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. That word expounded is the word diamanuro. It's the word where we get in English hermeneutics that means interpretation, to study. And when you put the word dia in front of it, it just intensifies it. This was an in-depth Old Testament Bible study showing them Jesus. Oh, how I would have liked to have been a part of that. I had a class in seminary called Jesus in the Old Testament, but how about Jesus showing you Jesus in the Old Testament? How cool is that? You see, you see this first? This, why didn't I see that? Oh my goodness, that was you? That was me. And later the same day, he does the same thing. He doesn't do a miracle. He goes to the scriptures. Look at verse 45. Later that day, he was with more disciples. He does the same thing, verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, what was the effect of that Bible study? Did they just say, that is most thought-provoking? We can show off at small group next week because we know more. Oh, no, 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 no. Look at verse 32. Here's the effect. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Our hearts burned within us. What does it mean for the truth of God's word to burn? in your heart and is that something that could happen to us is it something that should happen to us should we want that could that happen today oh listen to me yes 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 for the truth of God's word to burn in your heart folks is for God's word to become rich to you and louder than your fears, and louder than your feelings, and louder than other opinions, and more brilliant than the darkness that was starting to swallow you up, and the confusion you had going on, on in your mind. So you remember last week when I showed you Colossians 3.16 is the parallel verse to Ephesians 5.19, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Same thing going on. Word. Word. When you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit takes the truth of God and makes it shine in a way for you that what was bothering you, what was threatening you, what was trying to control you is all overshadowed by the brilliant truth of God. You understand what he's talking about? And listen, this is way more than knowing what the Bible says about something. In an academic, perfunctory kind of way, Again, I said this message isn't for those of you that don't know the Bible. There's a problem with people that just are ignorant of Scripture. I'm talking today to people, maybe you've been in this church for two decades, you know what the Bible says. Here's your problem. It doesn't make your heart burn. You have no desire to do it. You have no faith in it. You don't want to step out on it. It's not that you need to know more Bible. You need it to burn in your heart. That's why you don't want to do it. That's why you don't have faith to say, I'm going to, I'm going to live that way, even though it's radical. This year, I reread Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series. And I was struck again by how Tolkien does such a great job gripping you 
with the reality of just how dark and evil and wicked the world is. Lord of the Rings series is not really a children's series. It is graphic. It is, it is very dark, very wicked in the face of how small we are. That's why he created hobbits. News alert, you're not any of the powerful heroes. You're a hobbit. Very sad. So we got hobbits who can't do almost anything that are very pathetic and weak and small in a world that's filled with orcs and goblins and urukai and on and on I could go. Like how are they gonna win? There's no hope for them. That's his point. Tolkien was a Christian, I don't know if you know that, a professor, a brilliant professor of languages that invented several languages and he used fiction to describe powerfully spiritual realities about our world. So it's dark and we're weak and we're easily given over to despair and say it's too much, it's too big, there's no way we're gonna win, no way is good gonna triumph over evil, it doesn't look like, right even today, does it look to you like good is triumphing over evil? Does it look like we'll win? The only reason I would think that it's gonna be okay is God's word. And it better not just lie there like, well, there is that. It needs to burn for me. But God's word promises me. But God's word tells me I'm a part of something, an unshakable kingdom. God's word tells me that even when I'm weak, his strength is made perfect in weakness. God's word, but God's word, but God's word. But it better burn in your heart or you won't live any differently than someone that doesn't even know Jesus Christ. And so Lord of the Rings is basically two characters, Frodo and Sam, hobbits, on this quest to dispose of a ring of power. It is super powerful, but it also, whoever tries to use it, it begins to consume and destroy the very person who uses it. So they have been tasked, because they're weak, to go on this quest to destroy the ring. And they're in this terrible dark world filled with orcs and goblins and enemies and it's starting to get to them because it seems like everything in the world is more powerful than them and all the odds are stacked against them. And then there is this, there's this passage that Tolkien writes where one night Frodo is asleep and Sam is awake and gripped with despair. He's exhausted and he's overwhelmed by all the enemies in the darkness and how all the odds are against them. And what Tolkien writes next, I think, is the very essence of what it means to have the Spirit of God make the Word of God shine. You're filled with the Spirit. He's taking the Word of God and making it shine. As Sam lay there looking up into the sky, Tolkien writes this, and I quote, There, and he's feeling overwhelmed, all darkness, no hope, there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, shadow of evil was only a small and passing thing. There was light and there was high beauty forever beyond the reach of evil. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master Frodo's fate ceased to trouble him. 
he crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side and putting away all fear, cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. What is Tolkien talking about? I believe he's talking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit so that the truth of God's Word shines so brightly that it gives you hope and courage that's way more than what you could just muster up in your own strength or womp up with emotions. Sam got an eternal perspective that changed how he viewed. Did his circumstances change at all? Did the mission change at all? Did his strength or abilities or resources increase at all? His understanding of what was going on was framed up in something bigger. He got an eternal perspective. He went to sleep because his fate no longer troubled him, because his circumstances were now seen in a bigger picture of God's truth. And folks, Tolkien's not the only one that understands this, and that's not the only place those things happen. They happen not just in fiction. They happen real time today. I trust you have moments like that in your life. If you do, oh my goodness, there's nothing like it. Nothing like it. When God, by his spirit, in one of your darkest moments, takes the truth of his word and makes it shine, in a way that changes your perspective dramatically without changing your circumstances. I'll never forget in 2010, when I was in the very pit of despair. This is the lowest point I'd ever been. There were multiple factors of a trial that I was going through that was years long. Multiple. I'm not going to go into all of it, but just one piece of this trial. Keep in mind, this is just one piece of what I was going through, was that I was struggling with an ear condition that multiple doctors, I'd gone all over the place, multiple doctors had said, this is incurable. We don't know why you have it, and it's incurable. And it was growing worse. It started in one ear in 2002, and then by 2006, it was in both. I had just adjusted my life to the one that worked. It had gone to both ears, and this had lasted four years. And it was more than a hearing loss. It was a condition that caused me to not want to speak. Not helpful for my job. To not want to be around people. Also not helpful. And to think that I was losing my mind. There, there was something so odd about this. And as I Googled, that didn't help. Once he gave me a label on this condition, the internet just blew up with people saying, I don't leave the house. I don't talk to people. I can't be with people. I don't speak anymore. And that is everything that was roaring in me as well. So I have never walked through anything this dark. This that gripped me with such fear. Where is this headed? Can I keep being a pastor? What will happen to my family? I'm not that useful anywhere else. Pastors who go out of the ministry are not very marketable. Like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? What's gonna happen? Where's this all headed? I was battling a level of darkness and despair I'd never felt before. It was like a giant, black, soaking wet tarp was trying to engulf me and smother me and I could not punch my way out no matter how hard I tried. I was reading my Bible and fasting and praying and memorizing scripture, but I just couldn't. 
I was going down, going down hard, and I thought, I'm not going to get back up, and it was terrifying. And then one day, I was on my knees in the, in the downstairs guest bedroom where I had been many, many, many times. I would fast and pray for three days at a time. I was terrified. And I was crying out to God. And he brought to my mind in a way that was like a brilliant shaft of light that exploded into that room, 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I cannot describe to you the effect that that had on me. The ceiling could have been peeled back and the roof just ripped wide open. There was a sense of so much hope and light and truth and power and presence of God that came rushing into that room and just dispelled darkness and despair and fear and gave me a confidence and a courage that darkness could not have my mind. I was God's child, and the love of God was infinitely greater than my fears, and I was held in his hand, and he saw me, and he was with me. Oh, my goodness. That's when the word of God... Now, note also, he took a verse I already knew, but he made it shine. He made it burn. And please note this, this was not a moment of physical healing. The condition of my ears did not change at all. But the condition of my heart and the level of my hope changed exponentially. When I got up and walked out of that room, I was a different man. Same circumstances. Oh, my goodness, the hope from God's word. Listen, Christianity is not a list of doctrine that you just coldly and mechanically comply with. But Christianity also is not just some frothy emotional experience that's divorced from truth and doctrine. Real Christianity is the truth of God's word set on fire by the spirit of God's son living in you to give you life and light and hope and courage and perspective because you know he's alive, you know he's real, you know he has power, you know he's for you, not against you. You know that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's what real Christianity looks like. And it's not supposed to be second level, higher tier. That's supposed to be normal Christianity, word and spirit. Charles Wesley, the pastor and hymn writer, knows something of what I'm talking about. Here was a man who had sound biblical doctrine and was serving as a missionary. But there was no fire to it. There was no hope. He was in constant despair. He constantly struggled. Until his doctrine that was already biblical was set on fire and lit by the spirit. 
spirit of God and a, and, a, and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wrote the hymn, And Can It Be, that captures so well what I'm talking about. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I'm not asking you if you're religious. You're here. I'm asking you, do you live regularly? Please know it's not every day. I, every day I don't have that bedroom experience. But I'm telling you what, you never forget it. Do you have any sense of his word being set on fire by his spirit living in you so that it changes your ability to persevere and have hope that's not based on circumstances but based on his word? If not, cry out to God to set his word on fire in your life. This week, there's your assignment. Get his word sitting in your lap and don't just read it, but say, oh God, make it burn in my heart so that I'd want to live this way, so that I'd want to make changes, so that I'd want to repent, so that I would trust you in this dark world. There's so many prayers that we pray that I just think are wide of the mark. But I think there's prayers that God would just love to answer. Here's one of them. He delights in his word and in his son. Oh God, make your word come alive to me. When that happens, you'll never be the same because you don't see things the same. Oh God, thank you for your word and your spirit. Word and spirit. Thank you that when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the heavenlies, he said, I'm going to send a helper. I'm sending one, a paraclete, one that's called alongside you, that will bring to your mind what I've said, that will declare to you, that will expound to you, that will explain to you, that will show you my glories in a way that pierces darkness and gives you courage and hope. Oh, God, do this in our church family. Not just so that word would spread, that's a spirit-filled church, but so that when we head out into the marketplace and our neighborhoods, we would live with hope and we would live with, with fervor and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Change us, that you might use us to change this world, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.